Good morning. Greetings in Jesus' name. Certainly good to gather with the people of God this morning. I know this is a Thanksgiving season, and a Thanksgiving message would probably have been appropriate, but that's not what um, I have prepared this morning. Uh, the local, um, the three local churches are again doing circuit preaching, and each of us, uh, each of the ordained ones has been given an assignment to prepare a message on and then preach it in each of the, the three churches. And then, so I'm choosing um, to do mine here this morning, taken from this text here in Isaiah chapter 5. Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil. I especially appreciated the devotions this morning and, um, yeah, John's uh, thoughts there about a clean conscience and having the grace of God available for us to have that is such a privilege. I don't think there's, well, I'm pretty sure there's no other religion that has the benefits and blessings that ours does. I don't think any of them can have a clear conscience. Thank God for grace. Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil. A nationally known preacher once made a statement concerning the obvious consequences to children being raised without a father's influence and presence in the home. And you know, as you think of that, uh, we, we recognize that the tremendous negative evidence just abounds around us because fathers aren't, aren't faithful at home. And the Bible gives a clear mandate and expectation of God for those responsible of birthing children, to parent them, to teach, train, and nurture them. Well, this preacher, who was brave enough to rebuke failing fathers, was excoriated by the national media with the typical challenges, uh, the typical charges of being intolerant, of being narrow-minded, and of course hateful. And that's just an example of among many who today are calling good evil and evil good. You know, for a preacher to tell his audience that negligence in, in biblical parenting uh, will result in, in, in bad consequences and then being labeled as, as, you know, intolerant or prejudiced or, you know, the terms racist, narrow-minded, hateful, People who do such are doing exactly what this text condemns, calling good bad and bad good. Now, God pronounces a woe on those who do such. Uh, this, this word, a woe, is a really um, interesting, uh, kind of sobering word. It's a term of judgment. Whenever the prophets or uh, Jesus used this word, it was to pronounce a bad end or, or judgment coming on them. So what is, what is the subject of this woe? They're listed in our theme passage in verse 20. And of course, we, we noticed it uh, in more places as Paul read this text. But in verse 20, we have... These three, those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, 
who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And it, it's a serious thing to be doing this. One that will bring serious judgment on him. The word woe is a, a literal transliteration of the Hebrew. In other words, I learned this as I was studying, it's an expression that sounds the same in Hebrew as it does in all other languages. You know, the word hallelujah, you can say that in, all, in every language, that, that I guess in every language we know. Well, the word woe is, is like that. It's also known as an onomatopoeia. I think I'm saying that word. I, I never knew what an onomatopoeia was. Well, maybe I did, and I completely forgot it. But um, I was looking in this word, well, an onomatopoeia is when the formation of a word imitates the natural sound associated with the object or action involved. So when you say, whoa, you're actually, you're actually describing what the word means. So you consider the sounds of woe, it's a, it's a, like a, it's a, it's a, a painful uh, wailing pronunciation as you use that word. And God, Isaiah, and the translators' use of this word in the text is very appropriate. Woe. It's an exclamation of pain and grief. And as our culture drifts further, further and further away from its biblical moorings, uh, we see more and more the truth of, of Isaiah's proclamation here. It's generally not um, enjoyable or fun to be the one who must pronounce a woe on folks. No one, no one wants to hear bad news. What, what really is bad news? Even when bad news is true and accurate, should it, should it be viewed as bad? So these people were pronounced a woe upon. Often bad news brings with it grief and sorrow, uh, discomfort to, to the recipient. Bad news is generally not what, what anyone hoped or wanted to hear. Uh, None of us wanted to hear Brother Sam has cancer or that Brother Sammy needed to have a, a surgery or that Matt had a stroke. It's not the kind of news we, we want to hear. So maybe not all bad news needs to be told either. Much of it might be better left unsaid. But when bad news could spare the hearer much greater grief, it's actually a good thing for him to hear. And examples like that abound as, as we interact with each other. Uh, someone, sometimes somebody will tell you your, color, your collar is doubled up. Well, that's good to hear, even though you don't like to hear it. Um, or your, your account is overdrawn, or your cows are out, or you have appendicitis, your house is on fire. Those are all things that none of us want to hear, but we're glad that we know about it, right? In the spiritual realm, what kind of news is the believer expected? and even required to bear. By definition, the gospel is good news. And uh, John reminded us of that this morning in devotions. When we think of the many glorious themes in the scriptures, uh, forgiveness of sin, uh, peace and uncertainty, adoption into God's family, fellowship with Christ, eternal life, I mean, what news could be better than this? 
And it's all true. It's all good in this sense. So truly the gospel is the ultimate good news. Yet, not everybody considers the gospel's message to be good news. Some reject it as bad news. Uh, some refuse to believe it. Many consider it bad news because it contains elements they don't want to hear. Things like repentance, surrender, cross-bearing, forgiving others, and self-denial, they're also part of the news from the Bible. But many people don't want it because it, it convicts them of sin, it grieves them, it doesn't make them feel good, and so they, they don't want to hear it. But it's still good news, even when it includes some things that we don't prefer hearing or doing or living. It is good news for us. Reactions to God and his followers who are bearing forth this news, reactions varies. Uh, some turn away sorrowful, as they did when Jesus gave them good news. Uh, some stop their ears. They don't want to hear it. Some mock. Some physically attack the messenger, John the Baptist. Jesus, Stephen, the Apostle Paul, or Anabaptist martyrs, and countless others giving their lives for bearing what was then viewed as bad news by the hearers. Part of the issue of sticking, of trying to stick one's neck out and offer news, or even bad news, and consider what God says is that he, he risks his neck being cut off. And John the Baptist is a case in point. When he uh, made it known that Herod, and I guess it was Herodias, uh, she didn't like it that he was uh, informing her that it was wrong for him to, for her to be living with or be the wife of Herod. An opposition of any kind in today's society is often branded like that, as an enemy or hate speech, intolerance, and you know, the list could go on. Because of that, and not enjoying such uh, negative reactions, uh, plenty of good news messengers preach a partial gospel today. They teach remission without repentance, faith without works, a crown without a cross, a living sacrifice with no sacrifice, as Brother Matt uh, preached last Sunday, refusing to remain on the altar as a sacrifice. They speak to please their hearers' itching ears like Ahab's 400 rubber stamp prophets. The rare, the rare Micaiahs in 1 Kings chapter two, 22, who has the courage to tell the truth is considered an oddity today, as it was then. He becomes the target for negative reactions. Ahab said, I hate him, for he doth not prophesy good concerning me, but evil. 1 Kings 22, verse 8. Further, the 400 other prophets, they pressure uh, Micaiah to say what they want to hear. Let thy word, I pray thee, be like the word of one of them, and speak to us what that which is good. But that wasn't good. They wanted them, they wanted Micaiah to say that which was they thought was good, but it wasn't good. What good is a prophet who says what his peers tell him to say? What, what, what good is a prophet like that? He is like a doctor who cannot and will not give the bad news. 
Hmm, this patient, uh, he must either diet or die. He must either have surgery or die of infection. But I just can't bear to hurt his feelings. I mean, it might, it might, uh, it, it might jeopardize our relationship. And you know, there's all kinds of reasons why we wouldn't want to be the bearer of bad news, or actually good news. A good doctor and a good prophet say what the patient needs to hear. When someone is on a deadly path, it is very good for him to hear the news he needs to hear. And it's also very good of the messenger to give him the news he needs to hear. It's bad for him and it's bad for the messenger to be sparing the news that needs to be told. No matter what the pressure he is under, the true prophet of the Lord concurs with Micaiah as he responds to these 400 rubber stampers. It says here in verse 14, And Micaiah said, As the Lord liveth what the Lord saith unto me, that will I speak. Can you imagine the courage it took for Micaiah to do this? I've never been in a situation like he was. But that's, that's the prophet's job. It's also the church's job. It's our responsibility as a church here at Peckway to simply be messengers of the gospel. At the end of the day, it's going to be good news. Whether it's received, perceived, or accepted as good news or bad news, the gospel, the truth, is always the news we, we need to hear. Yeah, there's a place for tact. There's a place for communicating effectively, for speaking the right words at the right time. All as God's good Holy Spirit directs us, but the news, the news must always be, what's the Bible say, speak the truth in love, right? We must never yield to pressure to make people feel comfortable with sin. So when someone asks you questions like, what does your church teach about remarriage? Or what do you, uh, what do you believe about homosexuality? We must just give them what the Bible says. Good news that gives false hope is actually really, really bad news. Maybe we could all say so, so is bad news that gives no hope. I think this is especially true in the Christian realm, in the spiritual sense. As bad and as dark as it gets for believers here on earth, uh, we do have something really good and positive to consider and think about following our existence here. Uh, you think about Jonah. He was kind of a bad news evangelist. Uh, he, he did not really love the people in Nineveh. I don't think he really wanted uh, them to repent. At least it appears that way in the story. He, he gave them a, 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 the news of the coming judgment that God had asked him to preach and teach. And what do you know? The people responded and there was a revival. The people returned to God. But he, he really, I think, wanted to the idea, or he wouldn't have minded at least to see them uh, being condemned and, and, and judgment brought them. But God calls us to give good news that gives hope. For bad news to be good, it must be coupled with genuine hope. And, and that's just the beauty of the gospel. That's the beauty of what Brother John was, was talking about this morning. Like a good doctor, it wakens an individual to its need and then provides the cure. 
Humanity has always been adept at confusing evil with good. Brother Paul was teaching in our instruction class this morning, and we certainly saw that with Adam and Eve. And it's, it's still our problem today. You see, if evil were not made to appear good, there would be no such thing as temptation. We saw that happening in the garden. We see that happening as we read about Adam and Eve and the first, uh, the fall, the first sin. The fact of the matter is we have an enemy around that is proficient in convincing many into this, this confusion. God says in 2 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 13, For such are false prophets, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ, and no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. So the Bible says Satan disguises himself as, as an angel of light. I think that means that Satan actually capitalizes on our natural love of light. He wants us to think that, that what he says is good, truthful, uh, loving, powerful, all the things that God is actually. If Satan were to portray himself as a dark, devilish being with horns, I doubt many of us would be attracted to it. Most people are not drawn to darkness, but rather to light, especially believers. We're drawn toward light. I'd like to think we are. I mean, I, I think it's safe to say we are. We're drawn toward light. But Satan, he actually appears as, as light when he's not. So our ability and only sure proof method to determine good from evil is a, familiar, a familiarity with the scriptures and a solid understanding of what God says. So in this thing of calling good evil and evil good, someone has said a wrong deed is right if the majority of the people declare it not to be wrong. No. Doesn't make it right just because the majority said it's right. History clearly shows us that the morality of man without God continually is shifting away from him and his principles. You see, in my short lifetime, and, and certainly for those older than me in my generation, we actually lived in a society at one time where divorce was significantly frowned upon. Laws and positions in both general society and the church uh, against such things like divorce, fornication, and adultery, they were spoken against, and, and they, they were frowned upon by our society. But today, while living in the same land, uh, even less than, yeah, less than 100 years, Divorce is accepted by most of society. Fornication, adultery is, is glorified, especially in the world, its literature and its films. And many, many churches have just gone completely quiet on these issues. The Bible says, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. God has not changed his standards. They have not been lowered. God still calls immorality sin, and the Bible says he will bring judgment on those who practice and make excuse for it. 
Honesty was once a hallmark of character. And it still is by, by biblicists, but much of our American culture, honesty and integrity has really been set aside with ideas, it's all right as long as you, can, as you don't get caught philosophies. Uh, there's, a, there's a character in one of uh, John Steinbuck's books, he says, if it, if it succeeds, they will be thought not crooked, but clever. How do we get our values so mixed up? How do we fall into this trap that Satan uh, places in front of us? Well, for one thing, we're, we're short-sighted. Um, and I, I thought about this as, as Brother Paul was teaching this morning on, uh, on creation with Adam and Eve and all the fall. We often look for shortcuts to happiness. There, there was no question in Adam and Eve's mind on whether or not they should eat of that forbidden fruit. I, I think they were well aware of what they should do. But our lust for immediate pleasure prompts us to think of evil as good. And secondly, I think we just need to be, have this perpetual awareness that we have an enemy that is, that is just out there to destroy us. And he's an angel of light. He appears as an angel of light. Good and right is even so, even if, but good and right is right even if nobody is right, and wrong is wrong even if everybody is wrong. God doesn't change his moral positions to suit evolving behavior. One of those evolving behaviors, I think, is just this, this whole thing of, of rationalism. Again, we saw, we saw Eve and Adam do this in the garden. Uh, rationalism is the practice of only believing what is based on reason, or reliance on reason as the basis for establishing uh, religious truth. So Adam, who tried to rationalize with God, he says, the woman you gave, you gave me, uh, she gave me of the tree, and, and I ate. Well, that's not how God had instructed them. He says, don't eat it. I read recently that a, 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 yeah, a, a Senate member also did this, or used this method. He said, I did nothing that a thousand other men would not have done. Again, we excuse ourselves. We call evil good instead of repenting and acknowledging that we've, we've sinned. We've, we've made a mistake. And i just so blessed again in that devotional where... Yeah, if there's that kind of thing place, taking place in our heart or in our lives, allow God to come into that room and, and just cleanse us, rather than rationalize it. Lest we make some flim, uh, flimsy excuse for this behavior, let's observe what Jesus said when he met or when he observed the Pharisee. And if you want to turn to Luke chapter 18 for just a minute, I didn't put this on the overhead. But this is, this is an occasion, I think, that most of us are probably familiar with. In Luke 18, he told the, the self-righteous Pharisee who, who, was, who stood and prayed. And um, so he, he said, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. And he went on. He had a list. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I think it's down here in verse 13. You know, this Pharisee kidded himself, thinking he was really something when, when he was not. 
Somehow he had convinced himself that this is how God views himself. He was skilled in the ancient and modern art of rationalism. But the tax collector, and again, this was, this was people that the Pharisees looked upon as probably about the lowest, about the most sinful people that inhabited the earth. The tax collector, he saw himself as he was, and he says, verse 13, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And look what Jesus says. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. This, this tax collector saw himself as he was, a sinner in need of grace. And the resulting condition of his life, he could go down to his house justified and exalted by, his, by, by God. But the Pharisee, he rationalized that, oh, because he, let's see, he fasted twice every week. That was good, good, good stuff to do. And uh, let's see, what else did he do? He gave, gave strictly on the tithe. Surely I'm much better than this publican, is what he was saying and thinking. But Jesus clearly had a different perspective here. This week I was reading um, through Romans in my personal devotions. Uh, in chapter 1, I was hoping we could turn there, but I think we're going to run out of time. But in chapter 1, uh, especially verses 18 and following, we have very graphic and vivid clarity on what will happen to those who refuse to accept God's simple truth of the scriptures. I, I mean, the list is, is, is awful. What's going to happen? I'd just like to say a few things about the biblical view of gender. Why is it that in Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 5, it says, The woman shall not wear that which pertaineth unto a man, neither shall a man put on a woman's garment, for all that do so are an abomination unto the Lord thy God. Why does God say this? Why does he have such a problem, a clear problem, with those who dress like the opposite gender? I think this is a prime example of how the Bible places boundaries between a male and a female. God has, says he has made us fearfully and wonderfully. And he has assigned to us a specific gender, either a male or a female. The clear identity of the two and only the two, I believe we should view this as a gift and an order to be cherished. There's no, there's no ambiguity here. You're either one or the other. I don't think this is something that God wants us to be confused by at all. To deny the gender God has given you as you entered into life, began breathing air, to deny that is also to deny God himself, to rebel against his sovereign authority. On this creation of identity, he gave us a specific order in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, we have, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, 
Male and female created he them. I think this truth is the fountainhead of all conversations about human gender and sexuality in the Bible and in our discussions as we, as we yeah, in our discussions here on earth. Every one of them harkens back to this original account of creation. Also in verse 27 of the same chapter in Genesis 1, God says it was very good what he did. Again, therefore to deny who we are is to rebel again against God who designed us in the first place. It, it, it signifies, it implies arrogance. It implies pride and revolt, selfishness and self-indulgence. Whereas accepting or rejoicing in what, how God made us, it speaks of, you know, when you can actually rejoice that God created you a male or God created you a female, I think it speaks of humility, it speaks of gratitude, it speaks of submission and worship to this big God. Just a couple comments on how Christians should treat gender-confused people. I think the first thing that, that should come to our mind is just compassion. Compassion on the lost and confused as, as Jesus did when he came here to earth. Uh, Jesus offered grace. Jesus wanted to bring healing and redemption into their lives. It says in, in Matthew 9 verse 36, And when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them, because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Because these people are troubled, they're insecure and often possess deep wounds. I think there's, there's just such a great need for compassion, for healing, for teaching, and for care. And again, we need to do this uh, kindly, and, but yet, at the same time, very firmly, with gentleness and respect. I think we should also remember that they are our fellow men. And that the only thing that separates us is grace. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I think I need this reminder often. Andy, uh, Randy Acor, Alcorn makes a statement concerning grace that I really like. He says, any concept of grace that makes us feel comfortable sinning is not biblical grace. God's grace never encourages us to live in sin. On the contrary, it empowers us to say no to sin and yes to truth. I think he's right on here. Thank God for grace. Jesus came to take away and forgive sin. And like John again, I keep repeating you, John, this morning, but he needs our cooperation in doing this. He doesn't just enter into that room forcing his way in. Romans 6, verse 1 and 2, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? I also think it's, it's an injustice to others when Christians suggest that they shouldn't be guilt, that people shouldn't be guilty for when they live, for when they do 
for when they live in sin. When you sin, you feel guilty because you are guilty. Feeling guilty, and maybe sometimes we, we use the word being convicted in our sin, is actually a, a painful symptom of a dying soul. If, not, if something doesn't happen here, they're going to die. The, um, someone has said that Christ's grace is not spiritual Advil intended to numb and pain the guilt. Guilt is actually a good thing if it's dealt with. Guilt is a warning sign. Sin is the deadly disease. Christ's grace is the cure. I also think it's helpful for me to remember that there was a time when I was without God also. There was a time even when, you know, as much as, as, much as we appreciate multiple generations of faith before us, it's important for us to remember that it wasn't always so. Our people were not always Christians. Our ancestry, our fathers and mothers were barbarians at one time. Yes, they were very uncivilized, they were rough, they were wicked, and they were immoral. And if the Catholic Church hadn't been intentional about sending missionaries to us, we could very possibly be far from God this morning. Uh, I find that sobering. Uh, actually, I find it humbling. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. So in a generation where morality is swaying with the wind, it really is refreshing to have some among us who resolutely place their feet on the rock of Jesus Christ. Trusting a heavenly father, trusting a sovereign God who is their anchor, who will keep them in the storm. May God help us to be men and women of steadfastness in the scriptures. May we have rare Micaiahs among us who are willing to be prophets, who are willing to be a witness and a light in the moral confusion of our time. We need them just as badly as God needed them back when the 400 prophets were asking him 
to say something different than what he wanted and what God wanted him to say. May God help us. Let's kneel for prayer.